May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So we're looking together at this book uh, in the scriptures, the book of Esther. And uh, last week we had a bit of a, a think uh, to start with about where it fitted in the timeline of the Bible. If you think uh, about creation at the beginning and the new creation, the book of Revelation at the back, at the end, sorry, Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end, and all the sort of different points along the way. Um, and, and Esther uh, fits. Um, anyone, anyone remember roughly how many years before Jesus? Very, very roughly. Anyone remember? It's a nice round figure. You can just... 500, brilliant, 500 BC, roughly 500 BC. So two and a half thousand years ago, it's a long time ago. And uh, uh, it, um, it happens, uh, the people of Israel have been taken off into exile. I just wanted to, just wanted to show you uh, a couple of maps. This is a, uh, this is a Google map uh, of the, um, what we call uh, the Middle East, um, probably, uh, could be called uh, Western Asia. Um, there are different ways of referring to it, of course. Um, but this would be a modern uh, picture of, uh, of the Middle East. Uh, in the ancient world, it looked a bit more like this. Um, so you've got these different sort of empires uh, working. Um, and uh, one of the, the big empires that had been very powerful was the uh, Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire uh, had a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who'd come to Jerusalem roughly, sort of roughly um, 100 years previously and taken the people of Jerusalem off into exile in Babylon. But our story isn't actually set in Babylon. Our story is set in Susa, which is a fair bit further east even still. So the point to remember is not only that these people, the Jewish community, are still left behind, they are, they've been sort of taken into exile in Babylon, and some of them have been taken even further. I don't, I don't have a scale to that, but it's probably hundreds of miles, okay? So, the people that we meet are an awfully, awfully long way away from home, okay? That's, that's the thing to remember, okay? This is happening in Susa, and Susa is the capital, as it were, of the next big sort of powerful empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. And... Uh, King Xerxes, who we meet, uh, is the, the king of this sort of superpower that's, uh, that's, that's coming up in the ancient Near East. Okay, I just wanted to show you these people are a long way from home. Okay, we're going to go back to the readings because uh, we, will, uh, uh, we will need them. 
Last week, we uh, started our story and we found out the way in which King Xerxes was holding a banquet uh, to show everybody how wonderful he was and powerful he was and rich he was. And at the end of this, he wanted to bring his queen in uh, to show her off, to show how beautiful she was. And she said, no. She said, no, I'm not doing that. And if you remember, uh, King Xerxes got uh, really angry about this, sort of stamped his feet, got uh, his advisors around him and said two things. Firstly, she's not queen anymore, got rid of her. And secondly, uh, this proclamation is made, sent out to the whole world, the whole of his, uh, his world, as it were, that the men were in charge. A man should rule over his own household. King Xerxes is really an ugly character. He seems to be drinking all the time. He seems to be far too powerful. And he's surrounded by people who just tell him what he wants to hear. Does it sound familiar? Okay. The next part of the story, the next part of the story is what we meet today. And in this next part of the story, we come up against two more of the main characters. We meet them. We meet Mordecai and Esther herself. Now, Mordecai appears to be an older man, and Esther is a younger young woman. They are cousins. Not quite sure how that works, and if somebody knows, please do uh, tell me at the end. Presumably a very large extended family where there were lots and lots of brothers and sisters, um, and one of, them, one of the first ones had Mordecai, and one of the last ones had Esther. Um, they are cousins. But Esther is also an orphan. We learn that in the story, uh, Esther is an orphan. And Mordecai has been looking after Esther presumably taken, him, taken her into his house and brought her up. Esther is his cousin and he is looking after her. So, that's what we've learned. But all is not well. The king, who has deposed Queen Vashti, is once again advised by these uh, rather... Um, sort of dubious sort of counsellors, advisers around him. How are you going to find a new queen? Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. If it weren't bad enough, the way King Xerxes treats his queen, it's now going to get worse. Because all these young women, presumably teenagers, are swept up and taken into his harem, and there they will be prepared beauty treatments are going to be given to them and then they will be presented to the king. We don't read it in our reading this morning but 
it's quite clear how this presentation takes place. After a long process of being prepared, they are taken in the evening and they are brought back in the morning. You don't have to use much of an imagination to work out what's going on here. Esther is swept up into this. She becomes part of this competition. Uh, we meet Mordecai, and then it tells us a little bit about Esther, and then when the king's order and edict have been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace. Now the story unfolds. She seems to be liked by this, uh, this eunuch, this uh, presumably uh, uh, this uh, uh, castrated male servant who is in charge of the women, who takes them in turn uh, to, uh, to the king. Esther is uh, a favorite of his, the, the, the eunuch, and so she is well treated. And ultimately, she is a favorite of the king. She wins the beauty competition and she becomes queen. Right at the end of this chapter, there is a little twist. We didn't have a chance to read it. There's a plot amongst the palace guards. Right at the end of chapter two, there's a plot amongst the palace guards to kill King Xerxes. To be honest, when I got to that point, I thought, good on you. This man's a right pain, okay? But anyway, they plot. Mordecai hears about it. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. They are arrested, questioned. It's found to be true, and they are executed. Esther is careful to give the credit to Mordecai. So all this is happening in chapter 2. This horrible beauty competition. Esther wins it. She becomes queen. There's a banquet in her honor. There's a plot amongst the guards. Mordecai hears about it, takes it to Esther. Esther tells the king, it's found to be true. They get executed. Mordecai gets the credit. All of this happening in our story. What do we do with this strange chapter? How do we try and understand it? And how might we take something from it that we can hold in our hearts and draw us closer to the Lord? I just want to have a, a think together about some of those questions. And I've got a question for you, and, and perhaps when we're talking afterwards, over a cup of coffee, which David and Alison very kindly do for us, is Mordecai a good guy or a bad guy? Okay? I want you to try and tell me at the end. Is Mordecai, Esther's cousin, a good guy or a bad guy? Now, of course, on the face of it, he looks a good guy. He takes Esther in when she's orphaned. He looks after her. He brings her up. 
We even find that at the end, he's sort of prowling around trying to find out how she is. These are good things, aren't they? These are good things. So is Mordecai a good guy? On the other hand, is Mordecai a bad guy? Because after all, he doesn't stop Esther going, does he? He doesn't appear to work to try and stop her going into this harem as a teenager on her own, facing a very uncertain prospect. He tells her not to declare who she is. He tells her not to to be clear about her faith and her identity. Usually in scripture, that's not a good thing, is it? You remember the story of Daniel and his companions and the way they were very clear about who they were all the way along. And they are commended for it, aren't they? Here is Mordecai saying, no, don't, don't spill the beans, okay? If push comes to shove, don't explain who you are. And also, he doesn't seem to have any problem with her marrying a non-Jew. Again, in the Hebrew scriptures, that's not generally seen as a good thing. And yes, later on, he will use his position to defend the Jewish people, and that's wonderful. But actually, it's also self-interest, because Mordecai is a Jew. So is he a good guy, or is he a bad guy? Does he send Esther off, thinking, ah, I could be on a winner here. Maybe I'll have somebody in the court who can, I, who, who can influence things for my benefit. Do you know what? I don't know the answer to this question, all right? I don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. I suspect that actually he's a bit of both. I suspect that he has good impulses and less good impulses. I suspect he does what's right most of the time, but sometimes he can't quite manage to do what's right. In other words, I think he's rather like me and all of us. I think he's somebody who's very, very human, who wants to do right, but perhaps when the pressure gets a bit strong, finds it easier perhaps just to go along with the crowd. As the story unfolds, we will see this man is absolutely central to the story of saving the Jewish people in this part of this empire. God uses him to do something genuinely miraculous. I think within this story, Here's something we can take home. We don't have to be perfect before the Lord will use us. We don't have to have got every decision in our life right for the Lord to actually do something amazing through us. He understands that we are very mixed up. He understands that sometimes we do the right things and sometimes we don't. He understands that we can be strong and brave and brilliant, and other times we are weak and less than that. 
Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the Lord wants us to be all mixed up. He doesn't. Do you remember the words uh, that he says in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount? At the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? All this wonderful teaching in, in chapter 5 about, you know, if your eye causes you, you know, tear it out and don't look at, don't look at anyone wrongly. Or, you know, if you're even thinking about these, all these incredible things, you know, oh, I can't get any worse, can't get any harder. And then right at the end of the chapter, it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We know, we know in our hearts that Christ wants us to be like him. Be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is one of the key calls of Scripture, for us to imitate Jesus. He, we know that. We know that we are being transformed by his Spirit. We know that we are on the process of being made perfect. The best fridge magnet I have ever seen, okay? Not that I go around looking at fridge magnets too often, but it's still the best fridge magnet I've ever seen. Be patient with me. I'm a work in progress. Written on a caterpillar. Okay? Written on a caterpillar. Be patient. I'm a work in progress. The Lord is patient. He does not wait for us to be perfect. He wants us to be perfect. He longs for us to be perfect. He wants to bring the image of Jesus out of our lives day by day. And he believes that that can be done. Do you know that? He believes that you and I can be like Jesus. But he also knows that we're not there yet. And he can still use us. Just like he used Mordecai. Who as far as I can see was pretty mixed up. Some good, some bad, some indifferent. So maybe that's the first thing we can take. Look at Mordecai. He shows us that God can use us powerfully, even as we are. And secondly, and perhaps most clearly, this story reminds us that for thousands of years, people, usually men, have sought to objectify other people, usually women. To objectify them as expressions of a particular kind of beauty and as sexual objects for their gratification. It reminds us that for centuries there has been a culture where lots of people, and especially lots of young women, have had little or no power over anything, including their own bodies. This story reminds us of one of the deep and profound sins of the human condition, the way that people objectify one another, the way people treat one another 
as objects for their gratification. Now it is often men who do this to women. And unfortunately, it is still very prevalent. Do you know where the Miss World contest started? Do you know in which country the Miss World contest started? Go on, take a guess. Anything? No, no, no. England. Here. When did it start? Anyone know when it, this is, we're talking about two and a half thousand years ago, okay? Do you know when the Miss World contest started? This is all from Wikipedia, by the way, so I'm assuming it's true. But do you know when it started? 1951. 1951. Very good, very good, Julia, well done. Okay. In our nation, it happens, doesn't it? It happens all the time. Cultures objectifying women, creating images of them which are deeply oppressive for all sorts of reasons, reducing them to physical and sexual objects. It wasn't right then and it's not right now. And the fact that Jesus took time to be with women, to affirm them and to lift them up, is one of the most wonderful parts of the gospel message. That story which Cecile read for us of Martha and Mary is partly a story about, look, keep the main thing the main thing. You've got Jesus in your house. Don't bother about preparing tea. Just be with Jesus. Of course it's about that. Of course it's about that. But it's also about Mary doing something really revolutionary. Because who are sitting, listening to Jesus? The men are sitting, listening to Jesus. The women are in the kitchen. And Mary is sitting with the men. And Martha says, she shouldn't be here. She should be with me. And Jesus says, no way. She has chosen what is better. Leave her be. Whether it is the objectification of women or the objectification of any other group, we are celebrating, aren't we, 75 years since the wind rush arrived on our shores. And we know that in the intervening 75 years, there has been a terrible terrible history of objectification of black people, of cliches peddled and promoted, of horrible signs, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks, of horrible speeches about rivers of blood being delivered in our city. In our city, that speech was delivered. The objectification of a particular group of people. One wonders sometimes, I wonder sometimes, whether the crisis which has hit the Church of England over the past 75 years is because, is because we failed to welcome our brothers and sisters 
to thank God that he had answered our prayers and sent tens, hundreds of thousands of Christians to our shores who were failed almost universally, not universally, but almost universally, failed to be welcomed into the churches that they already belonged to. Do we do it to women? Do we do it to black people? Do we do it to our Muslim neighbors? Say you're a particular group of people. You all think this, you all behave in this way. To disabled people, or gay people, or trans people, or any other group of people you could think of. That we make them into one particular group and we say, we can now behave this way towards you. We know it is wrong. But it happens. It happens every day. It happened then to Esther and to the women of that harem. I suspect it is the experience of many young women today, perhaps of many black people, many Muslim, disabled, gay or trans people. Jesus comes to explode all of this and to say each person is created in the image of God. Each person is uh, equally valid. I have gone to the cross for each person. The empty tomb is there for each person. And each one of them can be a recipient of my love. I know you know all this, but this story reminds us of the dangers of objectifying people of putting them in one group and stripping them of their humanity. As the followers of Jesus, we should be, more than anyone else, able to welcome someone else, to see them as a potential follower of his, to see them as my brother or my sister, to see them as a member of the rainbow people of God. We should be the opposite of this. No one is ever objectified. We are all welcome as individuals, fully human, under the touch of God. So there we are, chapter two, we're on our way. Amen.